Welcome to the first episode of the Gods Among Men podcast. I think that's the name I'm going with. Where the whole idea here is I want to look for truth wherever I can find it. And I believe that you can really find truth and goodness among the different works, both religious and secular, written by humanity. And so I want this to be a place where I can explore, along with my viewers or listeners or whoever's here, different claims of truth, whether that be religious or secular, with an open mind and a willingness to find it wherever I can, regardless of previous assumptions. As a little bit about myself, I am a person who's been religious for most of my life, but a few days ago announced officially and publicly that despite being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or more commonly known as a Mormon my entire life, I'm going to be stepping away from that faith. And really, Christianity in general isn't something that particularly resonates with me anymore, although it is something that I'm open to. And despite stepping away from it, I do still feel an attachment to the religion and to the culture of it. It's my family culture. It's my family history. It's been a really painful process, and I'm, I'm open to the idea that there is a God out there who loves me. And if that's the case, I'm open to the idea that he'll guide me to find the truth. I received a text message earlier from one of my closest friends inviting me to read through the Book of Mormon, which is the holy text of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and re read through it each day and see if I feel like it is true. And I feel like that's a really good starting point for this podcast is reading through the Book of Mormon and evaluating its truth, seeing how that applies to my life, and then really trying to see how that applies to belief or membership in the modern-day Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I feel really conflicted with many different parts of the church, many different doctrines, many different teachings, but one of the main things taught by the church is by reading the Book of Mormon, you'll come to a knowledge that it's true. And by abiding by the principles within it, you'll come to a knowledge that it's true. And so despite it being complicated, despite it being intimidating, it's something that I do want to give one more try to. Um, it's something I've read multiple times my whole life, but I've never really read it from a perspective where I'm okay with any outcome. Anytime I've read the Book of Mormon before, it's been from a faith-affirming perspective where I already had my mind made up that it's true, more or less. And at times where I was uncertain, I still really hoped that it was true. I feel like it would be useful right now to disclose my current beliefs as a bit of a starting metric for comparing before and after I read the Book of Mormon again and study it but also to be fully transparent about where I am and, you know, my biases and where I'm coming from. As I mentioned, I've grown up my entire life in the church. I've identified as a Mormon my entire life. And even though I've had periods of questioning, especially with the history of the church, I haven't really ever opened up to the idea of it not being true. That's never been an okay outcome for me. And when I have considered or I was close to that, 
the idea of Jesus Christ as my savior or God the Father as the one true God has never been something I'm willing to question. And I really believe in authenticity and truth. And, and so I want to be open to any possibility. Right now, though, I don't believe that the Book of Mormon is inspired or that it is a historical document. And my beliefs in Jesus Christ and God are equally complicated. So in this first episode, I'm calling it a belief audit, where I want to go through some of my beliefs and what it says about where I'm at now and what it says about my thoughts with the church. Uh, I thought that a good metric to start it off with for guidance questions about beliefs and truth claims that the church has would to be going through the temple worthiness questions. These are questions that you need to answer in a in an affirming way if you want to be able to fully participate in church temple services. And so even though these aren't all-encompassing, I was able to go through the questions and kind of modify them to see how, how I align with the main teachings of the church. So starting right off the bat, the... I, I want to be rating these all on a scale of 1 to 100, where 1 is I have nothing but doubts and zero belief, and 100 is I don't have any doubts at all. You could hold a gun to my head, put me to a polygraph. I could see God, and it wouldn't change a thing about my belief. Uh, that, that would be a 100. So starting with the first criteria I have, I, I believe that there is a God. And as I go through these, I, I'll, I'll provide some context for each of my answers, but I, I'm going to get into them all more a little bit later. If I were to rate where I'm at right now with my belief that there is a God, it, it didn't specify necessarily the Abrahamic God of the Bible or the Book of Mormon, I'd probably say I'm about a 10 out of 100. I have... I, I acknowledge I don't know everything, and there's things that could be beyond my understanding. But right now, where I'm at is a more naturalistic view for humanity and the world makes a lot more sense to me. And the evidence for that is a lot more convincing than any evidences I've seen for God. Next question, do I have a testimony of Jesus Christ, his atonement, and his role as my Savior and Redeemer? And this is one I'm really going to get into later. Um, so I don't want to say too much about it right now. I would probably put that as a 5 out of 10. I have less faith in that than I do uh, openness to the idea of there being a God at all. Um, and, and along with that is whether or not I believe that Jesus Christ is divine. Um, like, not only do I believe he was there, but that he's the son of God and I, I would probably put that about the same place, about a 5 out of 10. So uh, the next question that I feel like is important and also tied into what I just answered is, I believe we have an accurate record of Christ and the things that he taught. And this is one I really struggle with. Ancient history, like the Bible, I feel like has been subject to so much politicization and translations that it's... We, we kind of have to go into it knowing that what we're reading isn't going to be accurate, but it's the best we have. 
I, I'll get into this more a little bit later, but I would put my belief that we have an accurate record of Christ and his teachings and what he did at about a two out of 100. This next one's a little bit interesting to me. I believe that the Holy Ghost testifies to individuals. I put this at a 25 out of 100, which is weird having the Holy Ghost as a higher rating than God and Jesus Christ. The, my, my rationale here is I, I don't necessarily believe that there's a third member of a Godhead who comes and visits each of us and can always be with us and help guides us through the world. But the way that the Holy Ghost is generally talked about is as a guidance counselor almost and as a comforter. And I, I'm a lot more open to the idea that there is some kind of guidance out there or there is some kind of, I don't know, com comforting force that unifies us and guides us all, even if that's not related to the Christian God and it's just some force that people attribute to um, the Holy Ghost. So that's why I have that at a 25 out of 10 is I don't necessarily believe the exact claim that is implied by that statement, but I am open to that possibility. Um, so the next one is I have a testimony of the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this isn't only a testimony in Christ and the things that he taught but that that church was restored through Joseph Smith and that we still practice that same church today in the mainstream uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I have that at about a 2 out of 10. And along with that comes the next question, do I sustain the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as a prophet, seer, and revelator, and as the only person on earth authorized to exercise all of the priesthood keys? And this is one that I am the most unconvinced. I have this at a one out of 100. I have a lot of issues with this claim and the things that it implies and the ways that we got there. Um, th this is a really big issue for me. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to exploring it more in this podcast, both this episode and the show as a whole. Um, the next questions are a bit more rapid fire. They're just kind of metrics of morality and seeing if I believe certain behaviors are tied to the ability to live a moral life. Um, so I'll kind of go through them rapid fire. These require a bit less explaining than, uh, th than the previous things. And I also want to reiterate that these aren't one-to-one -one, uh, replicas of the temple questions. I've sort of adapted my own criteria from one from what I was reading there. So starting off, do I believe that having clean thoughts and behaviors is vital to the receipt of truth and a happy life? And I put that at a 25 out of 10. Do I believe that sexual purity is tied uniquely to morality? Uh, I have that at about a 10 out of 100. Uh, I, I think I may have said 25 out of 10 before. Uh, that should have been 25 out of 100. I hope it's a 25 out of 10. Otherwise, I'm going back to uh, modify something that didn't happen. Next up, do I believe that following, or wait, do I believe that the modern and historical teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ are important to living a just and moral life? So essentially, do I believe that the principles taught by the church today and taught by Joseph Smith are vital to living a happy and fulfilled, pure joy life? Um, and right now, I really don't. I think that there's people outside of the church, people who have left the church, who can have genuinely 
inspiring and fulfilling lives. Um, I have that at a two out of 100. Now, the, the next question I had is, do I believe that truth and joy can be found in those teachings? And yes, absolutely. I have that 95 out of 100. There's just so many people who do feel fulfilled. And I'm not necessarily comfortable telling them that that's the only way. But I also can't deny that. So like I said, 95 out of 100. Do I believe in keeping the Sabbath day holy? I have that as a 60 out of 100. I, I don't necessarily believe that that's a mandate from God, but I do think it's a generally good practice for your emotional and mental health to have a day of rest. Do I believe that honesty is important to morality? I have that at a 90 out of 100. I believe that there's some instances where lying probably is the right thing to do. The classic philosophy uh, example is if a Nazi comes to your door and asks if you're harboring Jews, you have them in the back, uh, like back room. I think that's an okay place to lie. Um, but yeah, that's not super tied to specific Latter-day Saint claims. So next one, big one for me, one of my biggest holdups in staying in the church. And it, it kills me that this is tied into the temple worthiness questions. Do you believe that paying your tithing to the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is vital to personal worthiness? And absolutely 100% no, no, I don't believe that at all. And I think it is wrong and it has so much room for manipulation and abuse, having finances tied to your worthiness from God, especially when the person who is determining your worthiness, be, because you have to answer these questions in an interview with an authority of the church, um, usually a local authority like the bishop, having them be the person who decides whether or not you qualify for the temple recommend based off your answer to this question has so much room for abuse. And we know that the church has, I think it was close to $100 billion in savings. And my, my testimony on the law of tithing in general, which is paying 10% of your income to the church, that it, it's hard to evaluate without directly thinking of how it's implemented today and how it's been implemented historically. This is one of my biggest holdups with the church as it's practiced today, kind of culturally. Next up, do I have a do I have a testimony of the word of wisdom? So the word of wisdom is a code of health that was given to Joseph Smith, the the founder of modern day Mormonism. Um, and quick quick side note, I know that Mormonism or Mormons isn't the preferred term right now for members of the church. And I'll try to stay away from it, but it is kind of a force of habit thing. Um, anyway, word of wisdom, code of health given to Joseph Smith. It involves uh, most famously not drinking tea, coffee, alcohol, using tobacco. It's a really complicated subject. Uh, there's certain parts that were written like abstaining from copious amounts of meat or things that you should do. Um like general practices, eating, I think there's one that's like eating fruits and vegetables in their season, things like that. And they were originally given as guidance to the members, but it wasn't mandatory to follow it. Joseph Smith, for example, was drinking wine the night before he was assassinated. Um, later on, it was adapted into a worthiness requirement and considered a commandment from God. And as it's practiced today, generally people have it mean tea, coffee, alcohol, don't do drugs. 
Um, they, they care a lot less about the meat part, which is unfortunate because that's the part I feel the most passionate about out of all of it. I think that eating meat, even though I don't always live up to my ethics 100%, I, I think that the meat industry is wrong, especially if there is, especially if there's alternatives to eating meat. Um, but that's besides the point. I, I really, I think that there's health to be found in living the word of wisdom, but I'd put that at about a five out of 100. I really, I really struggle believing that that's coming from God and that our worthiness is tied to it, especially when that wasn't asked of so many people before us. And when there's other laws of health of things you do or don't eat, like hooved animals in the Bible that we don't follow today. And then the final question is, do I consider myself worthy to enter the Lord's house, which is the temple, and participate in temple ordinances? This is complicated for me. If the criteria is strict adherence to the things I just listed, that's an obvious no. I I don't qualify for that. But the God that I believed in when I was a part of the church was a God that was forgiving and understanding, a God that spent his time with sinners and would tell members of the church that they, they, they weren't going to be accepted into the kingdom of heaven because they were prideful. They were too focused on, they were too focused on the specifics. I, I feel like the, the Christ I had a testimony in would be a lot more okay with the ambiguity than the current churches. And going off of that criteria and the fact that I'm really making a genuine effort to live correctly and be authentic, I, I feel like the Lord would be okay with that, at least the, the Lord that I believed in. Um, so I had, I had that at a 90 out of 100, but it's a really complicated answer for me. Now, now that I have this benchmark laid out, kind of my belief audit of where I'm at, it would be good to get into these specific beliefs, to break them down a little bit more, talk about why I believe those things to set the stage for myself so that I can track how the evolution of my beliefs and my personal values change as I read this book, if they change at all. What I would ask as I get into these of people listening to this is you approach this with an open mind as well. I believe that questioning our beliefs is one of the best things that we can do in this life. There are so many examples throughout human history of people who get so deeply ingrained in their beliefs and unwilling to consider outside opinions that people become marginalized, killed, massacred, people on a kind of smaller scale become abused domestically or emotionally or gaslit. And I I feel like openness to new beliefs is vital to being able to live a true life, which is really important to me. I want to be authentic with what I believe is right. And there's a few things that are mandatory for that. One of those is having the possibility of being wrong, which is one of the most painful things you can do when 25 years of your life, I I just turned 25, have been dedicated to one singular belief and where alternate explanations or criticisms have often been dismissed as contrary to God, 
where the beliefs of the Bible, number one of the Ten Commandments is not to have any other gods before the God of the Bible. And number two is not to have any false idols. And while I could understand that that's something that a true God would want, it also stops people from exploring other possibilities. And it's a really uncomfortable position for a believer to consider other options because you have to be willing to blaspheme. You have to be willing to break those commandments of not having that possibility for other gods before the God of the Bible and the God of the Book of Mormon. If you want to genuinely consider other beliefs and other possibilities, like we ask so many other people to do. I served about a week as a missionary for the church. It That's a lot longer, or that's a lot shorter than is standard. When I was a missionary, I, I was in the missionary training center in Utah. And it was so hard for me because I realized I'm being expected to teach this gospel to people as the truest way to find joy. And I've never considered any other options. I, I've never considered the fact that some people would be happier outside of the church. And I've always considered people who leave the church as having something wrong with them or that somehow they weren't faithful enough. The faith that they had didn't count. They had just forgotten their faith. If, and if only they remembered it, that they would come back. And, and, and that the truth can be found in the church. It's the wholeness of the truth. How can you know that if you haven't tried a genuinely living other ways? And that's the same question I would ask for people inside or outside of the church. How could you know if you don't genuinely give other beliefs a try? And that is a really big ask for a faithful member. Because doing so requires the risk of leaving the God you believe in, who specifically says not to do that. He, he doesn't want you to leave him. And it involves the risk of leaving someone that you've been taught is your redeemer, someone who loves you unconditionally, someone who bled and died for you. It involves being willing to look at criticisms of the church and take them seriously and don't just dismiss them. There's a very infamous document called the CES letter that details somebody's criticism with the church. And while it is kind of a shotgun blast of information and there's good and bad details mixed in with there in terms of like authenticity and honesty, not necessarily in terms of morality, so many people in the church will never look at that because it's considered anti-Mormon. It's considered contrary to the beliefs of God. So many people are never going to seriously consider other faiths. Like they'll, they'll read other holy books as long as they don't stop reading the Book of Mormon, as long as they don't stop praying to the God they currently believe in. And it is very emotionally difficult for me to try and be okay with any possibility. And while I, while I welcome anyone, friends, family, strangers, to listen to this podcast, follow along with whatever place you're at, I, I do know that a lot of people are going to listen to this who want me to come back 
to their current belief system or hoping that I'll read something that brings me to believe what they believe. And my hope with this is that members of a faith can realize that people can have issues with it. People can read it and have it not resonate with them and still be authentic. I, I, I promise I'm going to give this my full effort. And I, I would ask that those who listen to it would do the same and be open to any possibility be willing to be, be willing to hear hard things, consider things in a new light. And if the God you believe in is real, trust that he'll be okay with that. I believe that God would value intellectual honesty and trying to be open to other beliefs. And if nothing else I think it's an exercise that would make people more open to the beliefs of others, make it easier to love others, and ultimately just bring us all closer as humans. So that that's my disclaimer. Before I get into my specific beliefs, uh, I'm going to take a drink of water real fast. Um, like I said, feel free to follow along in whatever ways you would like. For my first first holy book I'm going through, I'm going to be going through the the Book of Mormon. And I, I think it's important to talk about which version of the Book of Mormon I'm reading. There have been a few editions over the 200 years or so since its release. And I mo most of them have very minor changes. I'm going to be reading the Book of Mormon Reader's Edition, edited by Grant Hardy, I highly recommend looking this up on Amazon. It's a word-for-word -word, uh, transcription of the um, 1920 edition of the Book of Mormon, but it's been reformatted in a way that's easier to consume uh, with some additional punctuation changes just to make it easier visually to read. Um, I'm someone who has ADHD, and as a result of that, just blocks and blocks of text without being split up is really, really difficult for me. And so this is a way that maintains the integrity of the same text, but is broken up in a much more consumable way. I highly recommend it if you've never read any other formatting of the Book of Mormon. Um, and something I really value about it is it gives an introduction to the Book of Mormon um, from a faith-affirming perspective, probably about... 15 pages where they talk about its history and also some of the main criticisms of it. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's neutral erring on the side of faith affirming, but I think it's really good information that provides a, it, it provides an important context to what you're about to read. So while I'm not going to get into any specific readings of the book of Mormon this time around, I do want to talk about the introduction to the book of Mormon I think that breaking down my specific beliefs is going to be a uh, important context to understanding the rest of the Book of Mormon. And so I've written down some of the beliefs that I feel like are vital if I'm going to be a member of the church again. Just to give a bit of a syllabus isn't the right word. Um, 
a, a table of contents of what I'm going through. These are the things that I would need to believe if I am going to be a member of the church again. God and Jesus Christ are real, divine, and they love us. The Book of Mormon is true. Joseph Smith was a prophet. Brigham Young was a prophet. And the current prophet and leader of the church today is a prophet of God. And then the, the, the last things I would really need to remedy with, remedy makes it sound like something's wrong with me. Um, but, but the last things I would really need to address before rejoining the church are cultural issues, um, especially with people I feel are marginalized by beliefs taught by the church and its history, as well as issues with the epistemology of the church. Now, epistemology is a word I just learned. Um, it refers to the way that you believe things, the way you affirm your beliefs, the way you decide what other things you don't believe or the, the other things you don't believe. And epistemology is a practice that can really be examined for any firm belief. It works best examining things that change your behavior. Um, like maybe you carry around a lucky rabbit's foot around your neck, or maybe you believe in a god. Maybe you believe that the the star are ancient or the stars in the sky are ancient kings of the past looking down on us. Things like that. Um, and then examining how that works. So that's epistemology, and I have a few I have a few issues with the epistemology of the doctrine of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints that I would also need to absolve if I was going to be a member of that church or really any other church. Um, but that's the very last one I have on the list, and I think the beginning is going to be the best place to start. So that's going to be the belief that God and Christ are real and they love us. And this is specifically tied to Christianity with the way that this belief is often taught. And the belief that Christ is real is a complicated one for me. Uh, a lot of modern day scholars are in agreement that Jesus Christ was a real person, but there's a lot of debate on who he was historically and what he taught. Um, but apart from the historicity of Christ, there are also issues with the belief in how Jesus and God operated that different sects of Christianity differ on pretty drastically. Um, I, I think that people are going to see the God and Jesus Christ that they need when they read the Book of Mormon, when they read the Bible. And you can kind of see that representation in the difference of the Old Testament and the New Testament. The depiction of God as sometimes being vengeful, but very much being this authoritarian figure who isn't afraid to kill people sometimes or um, give people lots of afflictions or deliver people with pretty forceful means sometimes if it means furthering his purposes. And, and so we, we have this picture of a very authoritarian God. Uh, and, and I feel like that's likely to appeal to people who want to be saved from their position, who wouldn't identify as much with a more humanistic God than they would a more divine one. And th that humanistic God is someone who can really identify with our day-to-day -day struggles, I feel like is a lot more appealing to middle-class people or people who have a more people who have a more relaxed life than 
the the other people I was describing, especially like I, I don't know impoverished people in general. And, and so these are the two beliefs of God that I generally see is this authoritarian figure. Jewish people believe that the the savior, I forget the word they use, would be a um, a military leader from what I understand, or this very forceful figure that are going to come in or that's going to come in and save them. So the first step that I would need to do is figuring out, do I believe anything like any one interpretation more than the other? Because within Christianity, I'm going to find the grounds for interpretation for both. And I think people, like I said, see what they want to see. And I want to be open to seeing what the text supports more. But that does bring up another issue I have with God. And and it's one that's very fundamental. It's one that's almost elementary. And people have no doubt heard this time and time again. Um, I'm going to have a sip of water and then get into it. People have no doubt heard this time and time again. My issue with the existence of God, apart from, apart from like evolution, apart from the construction of the universe through the Big Bang, apart from everything like that, because I think that all can be reconciled with faith. But my more foundational issue with God is the topic of suffering. There's so much, there, there's so much bad in the world. I believe that people inherently are good. And I believe that a lot of things bad have happened and continue to happen. And many of them have happened in the name of God. The, the killing and massacre of the indigenous people of the United States and Canada and Hawaii with um, manifest destiny, people believing they were called of God to go there, the Crusades, there have been so many awful things done in the name of God that it's hard for me to imagine if he was actively being involved, if he was the God of the Bible who wasn't afraid to intervene, why would he possibly not want to intervene there when people are doing awful things in his name? And when he's a God who in the Bible is very sensitive to that kind of thing of people blaspheming. And in the Book of Mormon, I believe, from what I remember, like there's people who he turned mute, I believe, uh, that were preaching against him. How could a God allow things like the Crusades to be done in his name? How could a God who's all loving and all powerful and all knowing sit back while things like the Holocaust happen? And I think that there's a lot of instances where people see God in their lives. Like, for example, when I was younger, so so even to, to my uh, current age right now, I'm a huge Nintendo fan. I love games. I love uh, ba- basically anything Nintendo. And there was this time I lost my copy of Pokemon Emerald for the Game Boy Advance. And I was devastated. And I, I couldn't find it. I ended up saying a prayer. And shortly after that, I found that. And I think it's very easy to look at that situation and say, well, of course, you said a prayer and God led you to that. I have a lot of issues with the implication behind that. That God is answering my prayer to find a Game Boy game and not answering prayers of children who are being beaten each day by their parents not answering the prayers of children who are sexually exploited because I know people who have been in situations like that, who said that they did pray and and they weren't delivered from that. And they, they can look back on it years later and find positives in their life, but it doesn't change all the bad that they went through. 
And the implication that God is going to be more concerned about my Game Boy game than he is with children starving, being beaten, being killed, that that's a really uncomfortable assertion. And so that leads to the question, is there any other possible explanation of why I would have found that Game Boy game if it weren't for God? How could I deny a small miracle like that? Um, And I think there's something to be said about the power of stilling your mind and trying to voice out your thoughts, which happens pretty naturally in prayer, and just taking that moment of meditation. And, And while there are accounts of prayer where that is more difficult to account for, I... I believe that we should list out in our heads each possible interpretation for why something like that happened. And to me, taking that time to meditate on where my Pokemon Emerald could possibly be makes more sense to me, is more compelling, and is more comforting than the idea that there's a God that cares more about that than he does the child being beaten down the road. And I I know that this brings up a couple issues. Uh, and, and it's something I would have answered myself as while I still had a firm belief in God. The number one would be that people have free will. God's not going to intervene there. But which people have that free will? Who, who is he willing to intervene for? Because there have been people in the Bible that he wiped out entirely. Um, the cities that he supposedly entirely destroyed for being wicked. People he turned to salt for looking backward. And that that God, how could he not intervene when there's children that that need him, when there's people that are being taken advantage of? Whose free will does he care about more? And, and what about nonviolent, like people who are suffering from means caused by nature, people in Japan or islands who were killed by tsunamis? Where's their free will there? I feel like free will is an answer that has a lot of issues with the people God does and doesn't allow to have that free will. And it's something that is hard to think about. And I would really ask that if your gut reaction is, well, no, God still is giving people their free will. That That's a possibility. I'm open to that. But take the, take the time to consider what does that look like? Whose free will is there? And if you don't have a good answer to that, that doesn't need to destroy your faith, but really sit with that. Don't let that go under the rug. <laughs> the next question or the next point you could bring up with that is God ways or God's ways are not our ways. We can't see the ways that those things affect God's plan. And while that's true, I could say that about literally any issue ever, whether or not it's true. That's that's an answer that we would be able to give as an explanation whether or not Christianity was true. There's people who believe in gods that are entirely opposed to the Christian God, and they could give that same exact reason, and the reasoning behind it would be just as valid. <clears throat> so while I can concede that if there's a God, his understanding is isn't going to be the same as mine. I can't comprehend his ways. To me, that's not a satisfying answer. It's an answer anyone can give regardless of their beliefs, and it's an answer that can justify a lot of awful things that happen and continue to happen. So when it comes to the big God, um, maybe that's a wrong way to refer to him. Uh, 
God himself and not Jesus Christ, <laughs> which uh, in Latter-day Saint theology, God, Christ, and the Holy Ghost are all separate beings. That's my number one concern. It It's less about concrete ways to prove he's there, but more if he's there, how could he let these things happen while answering smaller prayers that are relatively inconsequential? Um, and, and I know this is the first thing, but I, I would really ask that people who are listening to this sit with that question and consider it deeply because even though it's elementary, it's fundamental and foundational. The next part of this is Jesus Christ and my testimony in him. So this is a different issue than I have with God because it it doesn't relate to suffering. The main issue I have with Christ is I, I don't believe that we can really know what he taught. I, I don't believe we have an accurate account of what happened. The I, I did four years of seminary each morning before high school. Um, and I was never taught that all of the accounts we have of Jesus were written down sometimes decades, sometimes over a century after he died And they weren't just written down by the people who were there, but those people dictated it to someone else who passed it down, who passed it down, who passed it down, who passed it down. And it becomes this big oral tradition turning into almost a game of telephone. And when you have this game of telephone, especially in a foundational time of human history where people were building new civilizations and there there was a lot of war and turning other people into the enemies, there's going to be a lot of politicization and how these books are assembled and how these books are written and in how they're put together. It's something that is generally accepted among biblical scholars to the point that it's even taught in most divinity schools for Catholics that the books of the new Testament, especially were not written by the people whose names are on the cover. We know that, oh, dang it, I, I can't remember the name. It's my ADHD. I, I think it's Peter, the one who wrote the epistles. No, that, that was Paul. Yeah, Paul, I think. Um, we know he did a lot of his own writing. We can ascribe that to him. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we can pretty much verify that that wasn't Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And when you think about it, they were, <clears throat> some of them were fishermen or, or maybe they weren't the fishermen. I don't remember exactly. Um, it, it's been a kind of whirlwind day for my ADHD, keeping track of details. <laughs> but people generally at that time weren't well-educated enough to be able to read, let alone write, let alone write a holy text. And we, we've been able to trace several books of the Bible, ones that were created and made it into the canon, as well as... Other books that almost made it into the canyon, or not canyon, made it into the biblical canon as forgeries. People who were writing under the pen name of people, uh, of Christ's apostles, because they had beliefs about God and about Jesus that they really, really wanted to propagate. And it's going to be way easier to get people to be convinced of that if you use the name of someone who was there rather than someone who, uh, just some random uh, pope, not pope, some random priest. (laughs) 
And, and so that provides an issue where you have these priests trying to make their ideas known. Some of them made it into the Bible. Some of them were outed as forgeries beforehand. Some of them almost made it. I, I forget what the book's name was, but there was one that almost made it in where Christ taught that people should be celibate even after they're married and that sex was never allowed at any point. And at, at the last minute that was pulled from the canon and didn't end up making it in. But the fact that it could have, I think is cause of concern, cause for concern. And I think one could say that, of course, God isn't going to let any books get into the Bible that aren't canonical, that he doesn't want there. I feel like you need to contend, contend that with the fact that Joseph Smith taught that the Songs of Solomon wasn't inspired. I think that was Joseph Smith, which is a book that's in there. So this creates an issue of the teachings and life of Jesus in the Bible being spread across a century by people who are fulfilling political motives who weren't there and who especially were trying to portray a group of people, the Jews, as God killers, as the enemy. And you can see that evolution in the stories of the, of, of the Gospels. Mark was the first gospel written chronologically, and his story of the killing of Jesus was not super focused on the divine aspect of it. Especially if you look at his trial with Pontius Pilate, he's kind of in and out pretty fast. It portrays a version of Jesus who's in a lot of agony as he's killed, and then, then he dies. As you track the sources chronologically, Jesus becomes more and more divine. And the Pontius Pilate especially becomes more and more innocent. He turns the decision of whether or not to kill Christ over to the crowd, over to the Jews, who say, kill him, we don't want him, let someone else go, let a murderer go, Christ is going down. Or they wouldn't have called him Christ because that's a title. Jesus is going down. And, and there's even a point where in, in one of the later written Gospels, Pilate washes his hands uh, symbolically of the blood. When, when you look back at the traditions at the time, the, the trials were things that would happen 20 times a day. Uh, that, that, that might be an overstatement. Um, but not this big, huge ceremony. And it's concerning to me that we know things were being changed to further political agendas and that those things especially were being used to portray Jewish people as enemies of God and that those and that uh, Jewish people have a history throughout all of human history of kind of being the oppressed people. <clears throat> That's very concerning to me. It's very concerning to me that we put so much emphasis on having the stories of the different Gospels tell one concise narrative of Jesus's life. Because these were written by different people who had different agendas, who were from different generations. And if you combine them all, you create almost a fifth gospel, one that 
never actually existed. But if you let them all speak for themselves, if you let Mark speak for Mark, you let John speak for John, you can get a look at what they were trying to portray, what specific aspects of Jesus's life they found meaningful. And if they did invent those, why would they have done that? I, I feel like you can get valuable insights into the lives of these people, into what they believed, into what motivated them by letting them speak for themselves rather than trying to create one combined narrative of Christ. Now, this presents an issue with the statement that Jesus is our one Lord and Savior. Because for most Christians, all we have is the Bible, and we know that there have been changes or alterations that make it less than reliable in places. Even Joseph Smith acknowledged that to the point that he was doing his own translation of the Bible. He was working on that. And if the New Testament has all of that happen, look at the Old Testament, which was written across a far greater period of time that makes statements like the entire world was flooded that we don't, like we look at the footprint of the world and, and we don't see that flood happening. We can look at stories in the New Testament, like the global census or the census across the whole country, where they had to go back to the land of birth. And you, you, you have to ask, how would that be possible logistically? I, I had never really thought about that. But if you asked me to go to the homeland of my ancestor from a thousand years ago, I wouldn't be able to do that, even with all the tools of genealogy we have today. And so, and we also have no record of that happening, even among these people who kept very detailed records. And so if you assume that didn't happen, why would they say it did? And to me, the answer I find most compelling isn't that there was a call for everyone to go to the land of their ancestors. It's that Jesus was born in the small town Nazareth when there were prophecies of a savior coming from Jerusalem. And so if suddenly after he was born in Nazareth, he's, his history goes to Jerusalem, then that portrays a version of Christ that works with a particular narrative. And, and I don't want to get too much into the weeds here, but the reason I bring this all up is I find the Bible so much more compelling as a work of men, uh, meaning humanity, trying to get across what they believed a good life looked like rather than a work of God that we can take as his infallible word. I believe that there's a lot of good to be claimed from the Bible, but I don't think that we can rely on it to give us a clear picture of anything, really. I am a big believer that you can find good and truth anywhere you look. But there's so many problematic parts of the Bible that if you accept it all as true, you're condoning a lot of bad alongside the good. And I think it's really important to consider the implications of that. 
and, and when we look at the evolution of Jewish traditions and the evolution of the scriptures and the gospels chronologically, the interpretation that makes the most sense to me is the one put forward by the scholar Bart D. Ehrman, someone who's dedicated his entire life to the secular study of Christ. He also did a lot of religious study of Christ and it's and his history and the history of the New Testament from a very genuine place where he wanted it to be faith affirming at first. And his conclusion is that Jesus was a real person and someone who considered themselves a son of um, a son of God. Now, son of God in the Jewish tradition didn't mean a literal offspring of a deity. That's what son of man referred to. Son of God referred ironically to just a holy person. So there were several people around that time who considered themselves the son of God. And the, the son of man phrase is uh, what, what was reserved for the son of God. It, it's pretty counterintuitive. Um, he believed that Jesus was an apocalyptic prophet, someone who believed that the end was coming and it was coming very soon. And he believed that um, he was called to help get people ready for that and that it didn't matter if they had earthly possessions because things were about to change and the first would be the last and the last would be the first and that the Beatitudes, the blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor, um, these were short-term this was a short-term advice to prepare people for um, for God. And I know as a believing Christian, this is a really, really, really deeply uncomfortable topic. And I also think that that discomfort goes back to what I was asking at the beginning of this to just be open to it. And, or, or at the very least, I, I just ask that you can recognize I'm being as authentic as I possibly can. And I believe that involves listening to multiple different sources and seeing what aligns with truth. If you want to know more about the history of Jesus Christ, uh, from what we have academically and how evolutions of how Jesus have changed and how we could possibly go from a loving message in the Bible to the Crusades, uh, I'd, I'd really recommend checking out the book, the historical Jesus from Bart D. Ehrman. Um, he also has two others that I've read and really enjoy. One is called Jesus Interrupted. Uh, and that's a lot less doctrinally scary than it sounds. It's not trying to interrupt the teachings of Jesus. It's implying that that had happened in the early Christian church through politicalization. And it walks you through that. Um, and then the last one is called Misquoting Jesus which goes through specific things that Jesus is attributed to say in the Bible and walks through ways that we've been able to find those have been changed. So regardless of whether or not you're a believer, if you want to look at things that we know for a fact Jesus historically said and things he historically did, if that's important to you, I couldn't recommend that stuff enough. And you can be a believer, you can be a disbeliever. Bart D. Ehrman, he says the same thing. You can be a believer or a disbeliever. But this is what is taught in divinity schools. This is generally what people agree happened. And if you feel like deepening your knowledge of Christ, I, I really highly recommend it. I believe it's an authentic book that comes from a place of wanting to find the truth. 
And it, I, I feel like, ironically, even though I don't believe that Jesus is divine right now, I almost feel more connected with his story than I ever have before. Now, this paints another interesting problem. If the Gospels that we have are all told by different people with different agendas, we know some of the things that were said to happen probably didn't happen. If you combine these all, like I said, it makes a new story. Christ was said to appear to the people in the Americas, and I am deeply interested in finding, as I read the Book of Mormon, what version of Christ is it? Does it affirm the version of Jesus that's portrayed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? Which, which one is most in line with what the Book of Mormon teaches? And I, I don't remember off the top of my head because I haven't read the Book of Mormon since I've gone through the Bible and the Gospels. Something I'm concerned about with the truth of the Book of Mormon, if it portrays a version of Jesus that is a combination of all four Gospels, that's going to sound a lot more to me like an 18th century or 19th century product by someone who has read each of the gospels than an accurate representation of Christ coming back to the earth. So that's a concern I have. I don't know whether that's going to be validated. It could go either direction. And I'm, I'm really excited to find that out, but this does lead us into the next topic of belief, which is whether or not the book of Mormon is true. And the word truth here, it's thrown out a lot. I believe the church is true. I believe the Book of Mormon is true. I believe that God is real. What does this mean? And ask yourself that right now. If you believe the Book of Mormon is true, what are you saying there? Are you saying you believe it's a historical document where everything that it says happened, happened? The Lamanites and Nephites were real people, Jewish people who sailed from Jerusalem over to the Americas and split off into different divisions, do you believe that literally physically happened? Or do you believe it's true in its principles? That the stuff taught within there can be inspired and lead to a good life, even if it's a 19th century product, even if it was written by Joseph Smith. And it's not an accurate representation of what happened. I don't believe that I'm ever going to think that the Book of Mormon is a historical book. I'm open to it. And I don't think I'm going to get there. Part of me hopes I do, because that would make a lot of this simpler for me. But the Book of Mormon has a lot of the same issues that the Bible is going to have, where it was written across, uh, or it's alleged to have been written across a huge timeline of people who are at war, and that's going to change how people see things. And then a lot of that was abridged, or all of it was claimed to be abridged by Moroni, who's going to have his own views and agendas. And I, I think it's a mistake to assume that everyone who wrote in the Bible, everyone who wrote in the Book of Mormon, are going to agree with the other people who wrote in there. Um, but, but there's a few things with the history of the Book of Mormon that are really difficult for me to reconcile. The thought that people would be able to sail from Jerusalem to the Americas is really difficult for me. The geography of the Book of Mormon is one that's really confusing. Um, the general apologist answer to that is you can kind of place it in Central America. 
But then you have to account for how did the plates get to Palmyra, New York, the golden plates that these were allegedly written on. You have animals mentioned that don't exist as far as we know. The I, I can't remember the name. It's like Coulombs or Coulombs, something like that. I'm, I'm getting it confused. We have anachronisms inside of it, like horses and bees and certain ore that wasn't in the Americas at that time, as far as we know. There are um, issues with Book of Mormon prophets citing scriptures or rewording scriptures from the New Testament when these prophets were supposed to live five or 600 years before Christ. Nephi, for example, um, he... Let me see if I can find it written here. Um, this is written in the early or the, the introduction to the Reader's Guide of the Book of Mormon, which, once again, I highly recommend you get this. It's even if you're scared of coming across anti Mormon doctrine, this was written by a member of the church. It seems really well intentioned. Uh, th- there are about two dozen chapters that are adapted from the King's James, uh, King James translation of the Bible, which the King's James translation was written way after the. Um, Book of Mormon events take place even if we assume somehow they had the New Testament it wouldn't have this translation it wouldn't have the same phrasing Um, but then Nephi lived theoretically before uh, before this was even written before it happened uh, where he in 1st Nephi chapter 11 verse 22 He draws a connection between the birth of Jesus Christ and the tree of life and exclaims, Yea, it is the love of God which sheddeth itself abroad in the hearts of the children of men, which is really similar to the wording of Romans 5.5, for the love of God is shed abroad in uh, in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. And and it's not a one-to-one comparison. There are one-to-one comparisons. replicas of scriptures that appear in the new Testament. Um, But this happens a lot. And even the reader's guide of the book of Mormon, that's one of the weaknesses I see in it is it acknowledges when the Bible is quoted, but not the new Testament. And that's something they say, we just don't have an answer for. So we're not going to acknowledge it. All of these come together to form the Book of Mormon into making far more sense to me as a product of Joseph Smith's time rather than a historical document. And now that that doesn't necessarily mean it's not inspired. It could very well be that the church was, or it, it could very well be that the Book of Mormon was inspired but not historically accurate. The author of or I guess the editor of the Book of Mormon Reader's Edition, says, nevertheless, the church is adamant that the Book of Mormon is historical. Uh, To be otherwise would seem to undermine the power of the narrative and would leave Joseph Smith vulnerable to charges of fraud. I highly disagree with this. You could definitely use the word fraud. But I find truth in things that improve my life everywhere. I find it in Disney movies. I find it in video games. I find it in books. Fiction has the chance to change us fundamentally and improve our lives for the better. And if you believe in a God and you believe truth can be found anywhere, I think your belief can, 
I, I think you can believe the Book of Mormon wasn't a historical book and still have it be just as inspired, have it be just as much of a product of God as it is a product of man. And that's not dependent on the Book of Mormon being historically accurate, which I, I feel like is an assertion that people in the church generally are opposed to, that it's a, th- a threatening one. But to me, even though I have the belief that it didn't actually happen historically, I'm far more open to the idea that the principles were inspired by God. And I think that that's compatible with the church's view. And I'll get into that a little bit later. So this ba- this gets back into uh, <clears throat> what does the Book of Mormon mean to be true? Is it historical? I would rate that right now a one out of 100. I would be shocked if I ever change on that. I'm open to it. It doesn't mean that the principles within it can lead you to a happy life. I'd say nearly a 100 out of 100. I'll say a 99 out of 100 just to leave a little bit of room there. But the principles leading or the principles within it leading to a happy life is not something that would be unique to the Book of Mormon. That would be something that you could find anywhere. And while you could say it has the most, you, you'd be able to get that from the Book of Mormon, whether or not you're a member of the church. And I don't believe that it's the only thing that can teach you principles for a happy life. I would rate that belief, like I said, like a 99 out of 100, though, that the principles within it are good. I, I think it's worth studying. I think it's fascinating. Whether or not it's a product of God, I am so glad it exists because it's interesting. Um, and I think there is good to be gleaned from it. Um, the next thing it could mean is, do you believe that the Book of Mormon was written and inspired by God? I believe that Joseph Smith thought it was, and we'll get into that soon. But I would personally rate that as about a 5 out of 100 for me. I am open to increasing that score, and it's possible that that will change as I read the Book of Mormon. But I think that there's also explanations for it that, once again, it would make more sense as a product of the 19th century to me and as a look into humanity at the time where you can get almost an idea of the zeitgeist at the time and how people thought, how people operated, and it can still be beautiful and not be the work of God. And that's where I am right now. Um, Let me get into the next point, which is uh, whether or not Joseph Smith was a prophet. Um, and, and there's going to be some crossover between this and um, and the claim that the Book of Mormon is divine. Uh, sorry, I'm taking a drink. <clears throat> um, but first I want to give kind of a picture of who Joseph Smith is. And there was a time in my life where I was a major church history nerd. I, I've read multiple biographies of Joseph Smith. I've really dove into that. Nearly all of my problems with the church aren't related to the history of the church or Joseph Smith himself. Um, so, so I've read a lot, and I'm, I'm not any authority by any means, and it's been a while. But I feel like I know enough to give a general outline of who Joseph Smith was. So Joseph Smith was born in, oh, immediately having to look something up. Uh, Joseph Smith, birth, uh, birth, 
day. Uh, I think it's 1805. Let's see if I got it. Yep. December 23rd, 1805. Uh, excuse me. <coughs> and he was born in Vermont to a Protestant mother and I think it's a Universalist father. A family that was very concerned with religion and who brought Joseph up to be a religious person who put a lot of weight in the Bible. In his entire life, Joseph read the Bible. He was part of a religious debate group, um, or maybe it was a religious study group. But regardless, Joseph Smith, his entire life, was deeply invested in the Bible, deeply invested in the search for truth, and he was looking for it wherever he could. He was, he was really uh, passionate about finding that truth about giving his thoughts on religion. He was really passionate about the teachings of Christ and providing explanations. And there were also there was also a lot of contention in the Smith home between um, between Joseph Smith's father and mother because they did have that conflict of view. And that that created a I, I think it might be a bit of an assumption to say a divide in the family, but there were definitely tensions. And as part of this, Joseph Smith Sr., uh, which is Joseph Smith's dad, he was an alcoholic, and there were, like, documented shouting matches or things like that where even though he was a kind person at heart, according to people who knew him, he did have his vices, and there was this pressure to find the truth in the Smith family household. Which, whether or not you think Joseph Smith was divinely appointed as a prophet, this is really setting the stage for him to provide his thoughts in a book. Something that, if his parents believed, it would unify them. Um, something that, if people he taught believed, he'd be able to unify these people in his religious groups he went to. Um, and while he never received a formal education, he was decently read. He was able to read. He was able to write. And he was taught by his parents who were teachers in, uh, I forget what they taught. Um, they, I, and I don't know if they did it professionally or on the side, but I do remember reading that they were teachers. So he wasn't some academic legend or anything, but he, he was educated decently. Um, he, he had a like middle school level education for what I remember. Um, and he could read and write. The other thing you should know about Joseph Smith uh, is his treasure hunting, which is brought up a lot by critics of the church and I think is rejected by members of the church because it sounds real weird. Um, but I think it's something that's important to tackle because Joseph Smith, um, if he was guided to find the golden plates that he got the book of mormon from we'll get into that a little bit later um you could also assume he was being guided in this treasure hunting before that he just had a spiritual gift of being able to find things and the way he would do this was with a seer stone it was a special stone that joseph smith would use to uh try to locate things and he would lead certain people to try to find buried treasure and he got into some trouble by leading people to treasure that wasn't there and charging for it uh, by all accounts, Joseph Smith really did think he had this gift. I, I don't believe he was trying to con people. Um, but it is an important context that Joseph Smith was using seer stones to look for treasure. And he was deeply concerned with religion. And there was motive for him to provide his own thoughts on it. Those are things that both members of the church and people outside of the church can all agree on. This brings us to the Golden Plates.
The golden plates are what Joseph Smith claims that the Book of Mormon was written on. Ancient records of the um, people of the Book of Mormon that was, uh, what's, what's the word? Abridged by the prophet Moroni in the Book of Mormon and then buried on the hill Cumorah, which uh, doesn't make sense geographically uh, being in the northeastern United States with what we know of Book of Mormon, of the Book of Mormon. Um, but you, you could say just an angel put it there if you, if you believe that. So there are explanations, even if that is confusing for me. <coughs> Joseph Smith claimed that the angel Moroni appeared to him and told him where to find these plates. He went there and four years later was able to finally get them. He told them that the Book of Mormon couldn't be around, or he, he couldn't go get the Book of Mormon for four years. <coughs> but he did talk about it. Um, he told his father about the golden plates, and his father believed him. And he, he used this time, his down period, for four years to make himself as religiously pure as he can. <coughs> After that time, he claimed to go get the golden plates and bring them back and translate them. I feel like this time, these these four years, is really important um, because it gives us a time frame of when Joseph Smith had decided on the story of the Golden Plates, whether or not it actually happened. We, we, we can say this was the first instance of it. And there's a separation between that happening and him writing. And why is this significant? That goes to Joseph Smith's translation method of these golden plates. Now, a lot of people weren't taught this, but Joseph Smith didn't actually look at the golden plates while he was translating them. Joseph Smith had them wrapped up under blankets and in the side of the room, sometimes they weren't even present. And what he would do is he would take his seer stone and a okay, I guess the seer stone was brought in later. He started with other translators called the Urim and Thummim, which were, I, I believe it was a breastplate with stones on it. Um, but he would put the stones into a top hat and then he would peer into the top hat. And he said spiritual light was shown to him that showed him these words. And he would dictate these words to someone who transcribed them. And then that is how we got the Book of Mormon. This was done in a pretty short amount of time. Uh, was it 60 days? Um, let me let me make sure going through my notes that I get it right. I, I did take a lot of notes on this because, I, like I said, I want this to be an authentic look at what happened. Um, doo -doo -doo. Just one second. Uh, all right, I'm... Let's see. Da, 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 da. I, all right, I, I'm having difficulty finding it. Oh, here it is. 90 days. So he had 90 days to do about 500 uh, pages of writing, which comes out to just over five and a half pages per day. Um, at a natural speaking pace, that would be five and a half pages doesn't sound right. Um, maybe it is regardless. Um, he, he had a decent amount of, of time to write it and it took several hours a day. There are multiple accounts. He never used any notes. He could stop and pick up at the exact same place, even 
after a break for several hours. Um, and he was having his face in a hat, which was going to be dark. There's no way he could have been reading off of something. Whatever was happening here, Joseph Smith was generating it. Um, there was a time that Oliver Cowdery, who was the main person who transcribed the Book of Mormon, um, he, he tried to translate it and he didn't see anything. And Joseph Smith explained a bit more of his process where he wasn't physically seeing what was written on the plates, but more he was given spiritual promptings and then he was able to, I think he said, reason it out in your mind, study it out in your mind. And that's how he did it. Um, and that Oliver Cowdery just wasn't doing that right. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So Joseph Smith dictated this book in about 90 days, didn't have notes, and there's a lot of really interesting things about it. Um, one that Latter-day Saint apologists, people who defend the faith, really like to bring up are chiasmus, which is this poetic structure that um, is it, there's symmetry between the top half and the bottom half of it. So, for example, we can see chiasmus in the book of Leviticus. Here's an example. Um, you, we're going to see a pattern that looks like this. It's A, B, C, D, E, D, C, B, A. Um, it, it kind of has points descending and then ascending. So in Leviticus 24, 17 through 21, it says, He that killeth any man, he that killeth any beast, if a man cause a blemish, breach for breach, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, um, and, and these are just excerpts of it, and then it starts working its way back. He that hath caused a blemish, he that killeth a beast, he that killeth a man. So we can see that poetic structure there. Um, and, and keep in mind that this was written by people who were highly competent in religious writings, the people who wrote Leviticus. And we can see a lot of those same structures in the Book of Mormon itself. And so the claim that people make from this is this is obvious example, or this is an obvious example of the Book of Mormon's authenticity, that people who were exposed to the Jewish culture at the time came over to the Americas and they wrote in this similar way. And it's true. You, you can go through the Book of Mormon and you can see lots of different clear examples of this. And this is extra interesting when you realize that chiasmus weren't really brought up until the 20th century, which was after Joseph Smith had uh, died. And so the implication of this would be Joseph Smith was writing poetry, essentially, without having any way of knowing it. That sounds really convincing at first brush. Uh, I hope that's a thing people say, first brush. I have issues with it, um, and they're not necessarily things that disconfirm it, but they are things I think that should be thoroughly considered before using it as evidence that the Book of Mormon is true. The first one is what I just read to you. These are all throughout the Bible. It's not something that's unique to the Book of Mormon. And it is true that um, chiasmus weren't really given a name as poetry until the 19th century. And I... I can think of an explanation for that. Um, and, and do an exercise with me, if you will, real fast. I'm going to say two phrases, and I need you to tell me what sounds more natural. The red big car or the big red car. 
And in English, the big red car sounds much more natural than the red big car. But why is that? If you've never studied the English language from like, like an academical stance to learn it, you probably wouldn't realize that English has a natural order that you give adjectives in between the things that they uh, describe. But that's something that we've all assimilated. It's something that we kind of understand instinctively without being able to put a word to it. Joseph Smith was raised his entire life reading the Bible, and he was deeply, uh, deeply immersed in it, and he cared about it a lot. He studied it with people. His parents studied it, and he studied it personally. It doesn't sound unreasonable to me that Joseph Smith was able to pick up on this and dictate it just kind of off of a feeling, kind of like how you were able to decide that the big red car sounded more naturally or sounded more natural. Um, that's not outside of the realm of possibility. And if you contend that Joseph Smith had no way of knowing this, how would the people who were alleged to have written the Book of Mormon known that? There, there were sons of prophets like Lehi and Nephi, um, and then people after they immigrated to the United, not United States, immigrated to the Americas. But is, is the implication there that despite it not having been observed, that these people were able to pick up on these patterns, learn them, put a name to them, know how to execute them, and also have that be a priority for them to pass down between generations. If you're going to say that Joseph Smith was uneducated, there was no way he could have known that. People around this time, especially um, in Jerusalem, they weren't they they generally weren't reading or writing unless they were heavily uh, taught. And the implication to me that these people who admittedly did have uh, church lineage in terms of prophets that they would be able to recognize chiasmus and think to use it in some of the most desperate times of their life and that after they came to the Americas that that would be passed down in addition with everything else throughout the entirety of the Book of Mormon and so what started as something that was really compelling to me for the Book of Mormon's truth makes far more sense to me under the context of Joseph Smith being able to observe this and execute it instinctively rather than something that people who came to the Americas would have known by heart and they would have known to do. Um, anyway, I, I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent there, but it, it gets to the translation of the Book of Mormon that that's the problem for me. Be, because this is all predicated on Joseph Smith being able to deliver the record of these people that actually existed and their actual writings. But, but he, he wasn't looking at it and there were witnesses to these plates, but those witnesses, it, it's, it's difficult because by many of the accounts we have, they weren't seeing and looking through these plates with their own eyes. What happened is that Joseph Smith had these plates under a blanket and he allowed them to put their hands under the blanket and feel them. And they would see them with their spiritual eyes and that, that, that's really difficult for me because according to those people, yeah, they would believe that they saw plates. Um, they would believe they experienced that, especially if you look at the people who were giving these witnesses, 
a lot of them had previous relationships with Joseph and, and they would trust him. They're coming from a place where they already believe in it. And when you already believe in something and you're looking at something, you're going to see what you're looking for to some extent. But the fact that people weren't looking at what's theoretically written on this is, is hard for me to, to, to wrap my head around. Especially when you consider that there was four years between when Joseph Smith conceptualized this or first told people about it and then when he first produced the plates. Even if you say that the Smith family was poor, they wouldn't be able to afford that much metal. Four years is a long time. And it's not out of the realm of possibility to me that he was able to get sheets of metal and bind them together with a skewer. I think that's what they were put together with. And, and so I believe he had plates. What I don't believe is that there was a historical record written on there. And we know that Joseph Smith was translating things that didn't happen, or sorry, that, that, that aren't historical. The Book of Abraham is a really infamous example of that, where um, Joseph Smith got this papyrus from, I don't think vendor is the right word, the, the church kind of banded together to get money and bought this papyrus for an obscene amount of money. And Joseph Smith looked at it, and declared that it was the book of Abraham and word written from God. And there were these facsimiles on there, facsimiles that portrayed deeply religious things. And he, he translated those into some really fundamental doctrine, like behold, this is my work and glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. That is fundamental to the beliefs that the church teach. Um, the belief that the church teaches the issue is that we found those papyri, and that's not what they say. It was a medical text. And the facsimiles have been studied by Egyptologists who can say pretty definitively Joseph Smith got it wrong. So the question is, what does that, what does that mean? I think it's fair to say that means that that wasn't a literal thing that was written on there. But if your belief is that Joseph Smith was able to receive inspiration from God, even if it wasn't historically accurate, even if he didn't have to look at these books, that's not actually problematic to me. Um, you don't need to say that Joseph Smith was receiving a literal translation of this thing. You can say he was receiving revelation from God, and this papyrus was just like a spark that started the fire for him. It was a way to channel the revelation without being a historical account. And to me, that sounds like the most consistent, transparent way to account for that. Um, <coughs> excuse me. This, this comes back to the Book of Mormon, though. If it wasn't historical, which I don't believe it was, how could Joseph Smith have accounted or re recounted everything that happened if he wasn't receiving divine inspiration? And without a doubt, it is impressive. Whether or not he was inspired here, what happened is impressive. And to me, it's not outside of the realm of possibility that during those four years, Joseph Smith was able to conceptualize a story, and I think in good faith, to teach the teachings of Christ that he really felt and believed in, to unify these people he's been talking to, to lead people to Christ and God genuinely, 
off of a story that he used as a uh, parable almost. That makes a lot of sense to me. There are some things that seem difficult to account for at first glance, like Joseph Smith stopping uh, mid-translation, taking a break, and then picking up on the same sentence. And if someone's got an incredible memory, though, and they know they want to convince people it's true, ending on the sentence or remembering the sentence you end on is going to be a really good way to do that. And so that's also not outside of the realm of possibility. And when you look at the five and a half pages he's uh, dictating, that would be, I mean, probably around the time of this podcast per day. And there, there is consistency within the Book of Mormon. That's one of these things that the, the Reader's Guide pushes for, saying that there's consistency of the story. And also, if you look at how it's written, it, it, it's interesting to me. Because a lot of these names and unique people are brought up and the number of unique people is often a selling point of its authenticity, how Joseph Smith couldn't have made it up. But if you look at it, there's really a few key characters that show up over and over. And there's also a lot of names that are mentioned a couple times and then never again. And there's also an overarching story thread, generally. But that's something that isn't impossible to memorize within four years. And this, this leads us to some other explanations of, of the content of the Book of Mormon, something that a lot of people posit as an alternate origin for it are other books that Joseph Smith was inspired by. And I think this is a criticism that is deeply misunderstood by members of the church, and including myself when I was looking into this. A really big one is View of the Hebrews. And this is an essay that was written by Oliver Cowdery's pastor um, a, a few years before the Book of Mormon came into being. And while the contents themselves, when broken down, or I, I guess when read as are, don't seem that similar to the Book of Mormon, there are some story threads that are undoubtedly similar, like Jews building boats. I think they built rafts in view of the Hebrews and sailing to the Americas. Um, and, and there's a there's a large list of similarities that are broken down in the CES letter. And while I think you can find similarities in everything you look for, and, and, and you can say Joseph Smith couldn't have plagiarized this, because even if he took it word for word, he'd still have to get like another 400 pages. That's not what people are positing here. They're not saying that Joseph Smith plagiarized it. They're saying that these ideas were in the general zeitgeist, the general conversation of the culture, especially among religious people. Oliver Cowdery did live a distance from Joseph Smith, but not that far. And Joseph Smith was deeply engaged in talking with religious people. And these ideas of where did the people on this American content come from, that was something that was, at the very least, meaningful enough at the time that people were talking about it and Oliver Cowdery's pastor felt compelled to write a book on it. So people aren't saying that Joseph Smith copied this book. I mean, some people are. Um, I don't find that nearly as compelling as using that as evidence to say this is something that Joseph Smith was predisposed to think about. And if you look at a lot of the threads of how it came to be, like finding buried treasure and translating it with a seer stone These are things that were already in Joseph Smith's life. 
And I think this forms a picture of the origin of the Book of Mormon that's that's really interesting. That really paints Joseph as trying to help the people in his time by answering questions that they had. Another book that's often brought up is the first book of Napoleon, which has very little, um, very little of its content similar to the Book of Mormon. In fact, it's totally different. What is interesting, though, is the language was remarkably similar to the Book of Mormon. There's certain phrases, and it's all written in that kind of uh, Middle English, like the, and thus it came to pass. Um, and, and so while I think it's stupid to say Joseph Smith looked at this book and decided, hey, that's I, I'm going to do this exact thing, it does kind of show that when someone's trying to come off as authoritative in that time, that they were writing in Middle English. And so neither of these is enough to account for the entire story of the book, but all of them come together to be a lot more convincing to me that Joseph Smith was, I don't want to call him a fraud because I really believe he was well-intentioned, but I think that Joseph Smith had these ideas to unify people and lead them to Christ. He genuinely believed he was inspired and he was willing to construct a story and tell people that it was true in order to do that. And there, there's a really interesting parallel in the start of the Book of Mormon that I guess we can get into as, as I read that. Um, that if viewed through the context of Joseph Smith writing the book himself, provides a really interesting insight into his psychology and what he was thinking about at the time. And that's the story of Nephi and Laban. Now, like I said, we'll get into this when I read it, but the general idea is there's this prophet named Nephi who comes across a drunken man, his uncle, I I didn't highlight any of the important parts, uh, a, a wicked man named Laban who had access to scripture. And he found him when he was drunk, uh, when Laban was drunk, and he was commanded to kill him. Nephi says, I'm not killing him. That's wicked. I've never said the blood of man. I don't want to do it now. And the message from God is one that if Joseph Smith was making this up is fascinating because it is saying generally that one wrong thing is worth it if it saves the souls of an uncountable number of people. And this very well could have been on Joseph Smith's mind where he knew he didn't have actual records of these people. He didn't believe he needed them, or maybe he believed he needed them, um, but he, he wasn't using those supposed records while he was translating. But with all of this context of his life, I could very much believe that he saw a lot of himself in this story of Nephi, that he saw himself as someone who had to do one wrong for a greater good. I believe that Joseph Smith was really well-intentioned. I believe that Joseph Smith was buying what he sold. He really thought it was inspired of God. I think that he was, like I said, a well-intentioned person who had one big lie. And that lie can be accounted for if it is a lie. I'm, once again, I'm trying to be honest with where I am currently. And I understand this can be really uncomfortable to a member of the church, but I, I, I just... I have to be authentic with my thought process here if I'm going to actively engage with this book in a real way. Um, We can track the evolution of the story of the Book of Mormon. 
especially Joseph Smith's first vision where he saw God the Father and Jesus Christ, where originally the story didn't have God the Father and Jesus Christ. I believe it was angels. And there's four main accounts of this first vision. And the apologist's response to this is, well, that's further evidence he didn't make it up. Because it, the only reason you'll tell a story the exact same way every time is if you're lying, because then you have to memorize the story. And then you're reciting it by rote rather than telling it authentically. But to be honest, I, I, I feel a little, I feel hurt by this explanation. I feel gaslit. Because not only would that mean you got to discount every other story that Joseph Smith told consistently, because that's evidence of lying, but this is saying inconsistency is proof of truth. And it's not just small details that change. It's God. It's God and Jesus Christ appearing. That's huge. That is huge. And if Joseph Smith is trying to convince people that these are real and that people are skeptical because they know Joseph Smith, you are the one who's already deeply involved in religious debate. You're the one who's treasure hunting. And now you're telling me a story that's going to solve the debates about religion and involve you treasure hunting. You need some big evidence it, it makes sense to me that these claims would evolve. It, that makes so much sense to me. And it makes more sense to me than Joseph Smith just decided not to mention that God and Jesus Christ were there. And I feel gaslit and misled for being told that this is evidence of him telling the truth. Because this creates a situation where whether or not he changes the story each time, it's evidence that he's telling the truth. And that presupposes the outcome. And that feels really bad to me as someone who's trying to seek the truth. And at the same time, even if this story was evolving, even if Joseph Smith was telling a book of fiction, I don't believe he started as someone who was deceiving out of malicious intent. I think he was well-intentioned and he was reading the book of Mormon while like the, the night before he died. That's not something someone would do if they didn't believe it. I think he believed he had a gift and I think you can't start a huge movement with some amount of ego, um, believing that you would have a gift like that. Um, by all accounts, Joseph Smith started as a really genuine person. Um, but that, wasn't always the case by the end of it. I think that power corrupts and that even if Joseph Smith started with good intentions, there came a point where that was an issue or where his good intentions got a little clouded by what he was teaching. And the big point, the infamous point brought up with that is polygamy. I don't have an issue with the idea that polygamy was restored. And what I do have an issue with is the ways that Joseph Smith got his extra wives. Um, some of them were underaged. I think the youngest was 14. That wasn't nearly as taboo at the time. One of the most disturbing to me is a wife that Joseph Smith married, who was already married. He sent the husband on a mission and married the wife. And it, it's hard to know what Joseph Smith was saying to them to convince them or at least it would be if it weren't for the daughter of Sidney Rigdon, who um, I think it was Sidney Rigdon, who I believe was 19 at the time. Joseph Smith said, I've received revelation. You need to marry me. She said, no. 
Joseph Smith said, you need to, or an angel will strike you down with a flaming sword. She said no, and then he wrote her a letter that is generally called the happiness letter that is just full of by-the-book manipulation, saying positives that happen if you do, negatives that happen if you don't, that if the, if the word of God is true, then it's problematic. And if the Book of Mormon isn't true, if Joseph Smith wasn't a prophet at that point, it's really disturbing and manipulative. And just like I said, every, every tactic in the book. And that's even if, even if Joseph Smith was receiving revelation for marrying that person, God believes in free choice from what is taught to us. And I don't believe that God would strike someone down with a flaming sword for marrying someone that they don't want to. I don't believe God would lead someone to find a wife like that. And it's extra complicated when Joseph Smith was lying about the polygamy the whole time. And there was a lot of political reasons for that. He was running for president at the time. Uh, it was generally really frowned upon. Even Oliver Cowdery was so put off by polygamy that he left. And a lot of the original people in the church left who were uh, Joseph Smith's allies because they thought it was wrong. Um, one of the three witnesses who saw the plates said, yeah, I saw the plates. But even if you were a prophet then, you're not now. And... There's explanations for why Joseph Smith could have lied about it, um, like those political tensions, but it just complicates things further. And this brings us to Joseph Smith's death, which translates into the next point of vital belief if you're going to say the church is true, which is the current president of the church is a prophet of God. Joseph Smith, um, uh, excuse me, as I mentioned, he was running for president. Um, there's a, it, let, let's see, I want to make sure I, I describe this well. <clears throat> Joseph Smith was running for president and there were a lot of political tensions and the Mormons, wherever they went, had a lot of political power by the sheer amount of people that he amassed. And when they went somewhere, they would become, if not the majority, then a plurality of the people who had a lot of influence. And that was scary. And it came to the point where there were a lot of critics of Joseph Smith and the church, both because you have politic or you have critics of anyone who's running for office, but then also because there were people defecting from the church because they didn't believe he was inspired anymore. One of these critics was uh, the head of a publishing company and they put out an expose almost uh, in the church. People generally refer to it as anti-Mormon rhetoric that was intended to take down and diminish the authenticity and uh, righteousness of the church. And um, it, it it's, it's really troubling for me to think about, um, but Joseph Smith ordered for this pin printing press to be burned down. The reason that's so difficult for me is information, information control is a really big red flag in a manipulative organization. And burning books or publications is really bad. 
in terms of that. Uh, you, you get political candidates today who are uh, thrown under the bus for saying there's fake news and that uh, they want to just ban certain uh, news outlets from covering things. That's really frowned upon today. And Joseph Smith ordered for the destruction of this printing press. It was done. People didn't like it. They sought him out. Uh, and Joseph Smith ran. He wanted to get away. And I believe he ended up receiving a letter from someone. Or may maybe it was Revelation. I don't quite remember. That he needed to go back. He went back. They imprisoned him. And shortly after that, he was assassinated. There's a wonderful breakdown of this by Dallin H. Oaks, who's an apostle of the church. Um, it's called The Trial of the Assassins of Joseph Smith, and it goes into a lot of detail. Even if you just read the first chapter, it's a better summary of it than I've ever heard elsewhere. Um, but there's an issue when the prophet of your church is killed, because who's going to lead them now? And there wasn't a clear answer at the time. Uh, in fact, it took about three years for the first official answer to come. So many members of the church were uh, scattered at this time. They didn't have someone to lead them. The prophet had been killed, and the church split. And then it split, and then it split, and then it split, and split, and split. And if you look up um, denominations of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, there are so many. But this is a really important question to look into because we're not the only church that believes in the Book of Mormon. I'm, I'm saying we. Uh, I, I still associate with it to some extent because, like I said, it's my family culture. Um, but the mainstream Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints isn't the only religion that believes in the Book of Mormon. And after Joseph Smith was killed, there were a few main divisions of the church that split off. And these divisions were all really influential among, among the people. Starting with one that's kind of interesting to talk about, there was a man named James Strang. And Strang claimed that he was the appointed um, follower of Joseph Smith, the appointed successor. And he led his group of people that he called Strangites. Um, and what's interesting about Strang is he wrote an additional book, uh, Book of the Book of Mormon. He claimed that he was led to the small plates of Nephi. And the I think he called them the plates of Laban. And this gave additional information and additional doctrine. He ended up calling it the book of the law of the land. And this is something that is generally disregarded among other factions of the church. Jo uh, James Strang wasn't a super popular person. He ended up being assassinated. But if you believe that God chooses prophets and that God can lead those prophets to buried plates that he can inspire to translate words of ancient Americans, it really bothers me that I said I had a testimony of the mainstream church when I never looked into someone who was claiming to continue having revelation. Um, so the, the, the book of the law of the land is one that I'm going to be reading in my pursuit of truth of the book of Mormon. And I'm really curious to see how it aligns with things. Cause I've never read it. Um, when James Strang was assassinated, there were two main divisions left. Some people wanted 
Joseph Smith's bloodline to be the leadership of the church. Um, and this include Emma Smith. The issue, Joseph Smith's son, Joseph Smith III, uh, Joseph III was 11 years old. He was not old enough to lead a church. So they kind of just waited for a bit. Um, and in the time it took James Strang to be assassinated, uh, Joseph Smith III was old enough to kind of take up that mantle. They said, hey, we want you to lead us. Joseph Smith III said, ah, I'm not up to it. I'll lead you if I feel inspired by God. And in 1860, he ended up feeling inspired by God. Um, and so he started a division of the church, which he called the main, or he called the Reformed Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This is not the mainstream church today, because there was another person, Brigham Young, who ended up leading his own group of people. Brigham Young was, I believe, the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, which is like the uh, next authority under the prophet in the church. And the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles had an eternal debate, internal, not eternal, of who was going to lead them. Sidney Rigdon was the eldest among them in seniority, and he thought that he should lead them. Uh, they ended up deciding no. And so Sidney Rigdon branched off and started the Rigdonites, which was its own denomination of the church. It fizzled out pretty quick. The title ended up going to Brigham Young. Three years later, after Joseph Smith was killed, Joseph Smith never appointed him directly, but he did give revelation in the Doctrine and Covenants that uh, the, the Quorum of the Twelve was equal in authority to the First Presidency, which contained the prophet. So they decided the president of the Quorum of the Twelve, which I believe was Brigham Young, should be the next prophet, and then Brigham Young took up that mantle. Now this gives us two forms of the church that are really, really important to dissect because neither of them had a super clear answer of who was supposed to succeed Joseph Smith. But both of them did feel strongly about it. And there was a clear divide. And the Smiths, as a family, had a lot of tensions with Brigham Young. And these ended up going into two different churches that are here today. The first one I'm going to go into is the one founded by Joseph III, uh, the RLDS Church, Reformed Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, um, and the that's kind of been rebranded as the Church of Christ. <laughs> so eventually, Joseph III was convinced to be the next prophet. In 1860, he said he received revelation from God that Brigham Young wasn't the prophet and that Joseph III had to continue, uh, continue the line of priesthood, which is like the authority to act in the name of God, and it was ordained to him. They also believe that the Book of Mormon is the word of God, but they're a bit more uh, liberal or loose in their belief of the scriptures than the mainstream church. Uh, they do believe that they have the priesthood authority, um, and they use all of the same books. They use the Book of Mormon. They use the Doctrine and Covenants. Um, they believe in the construction of temples. They believe in the word of wisdom. They believe in being saved by grace. But where they differ, a, a very vital and fascinating point to me is in their opinion and sustaining of scriptures and in the sustaining of some of the more controversial practices 
taught by Joseph Smith. For example, polygamy. Joseph III had a really nuanced view of this, or a, a really uh, nuanced might, might not be the right word. Um, I, I think they used the word pragmatic to describe him, where he said basically all of these controversial things either weren't doctrine or they're not anymore, even if they were then or they never were. And so this gets rid of a lot of the issues with the early church because it if you claim that the prophet isn't acting as the prophet that um kind of absolves a lot of those issues that people had but the issue is this also leads to an interpretation of the gospel if that was wrong what else is wrong and that kind of leads to where the church of christ is today where they believe the bible and book of mormon aren't necessarily historical and you don't even have to believe either of them are inspired, but what you should do is look at the principles inside of it and apply it to your life. They believe that they have the priesthood authority, like I said, but they believe that it's okay to choose to take what you will from the Bible and Book of Mormon, which I believe people in the church, the mainline church, already do with the Bible. So many people have an issue with the Old Testament or parts of the New Testament, um, people pick and choose what parts of the word of wisdom they're going to follow. So many people uh, in the church just ignore parts of it entirely. Like I said, eating meat um, or say that's not what it said. Uh, the, the church of Christ has a much more moderate view where that's all right. And you can still be saved. You can still be just as valuable of a member. Um, their mission statement today is we proclaim Jesus Christ and promote communities of joy, hope, love, and peace. We'll become a wor worldwide church dedicated to the pursuit of peace, reconciliation, and the healing of the spirit. Um, a big point that they have in their doctrine today is the worth of each person, where people are all created equal under God, and it doesn't matter if you're gay, it doesn't matter if you're trans, it doesn't matter if you are um, a, a woman. It doesn't matter if you're black. You're just as entitled to the priesthood and all of the blessings of God, regardless of who you are. That's a different take than the current church has today um, and a different take than what Brigham Young taught. The church today in its modern times has an issue if you're transgender and you act in accordance to that, like you dress your preferred way or use your preferred name, uh, you're, you're not allowed to participate in all the ordinance of the church. Um, that's ironically in the handbook right next to teaching that tolerance is an important part of the church and acceptance. Um, so the, the community of Christ, they believe in... Uh, the, the Book of Mormon, they believe in the priesthood. They just believe that Brigham Young was misguided. And it's really, really interesting because it's like an alternate version of the mainstream church that is really conscious of social and political issues. But because of that, it's criticized by the mainstream church for going adrift and being swept up by the wants of the world. And this leads us to Brigham Young and the mainstream church. Because it's not just enough to believe that the Book of Mormon is true. And it's not just enough to believe that Joseph Smith was a prophet. You also need to believe that Brigham Young was a prophet, in addition to the modern-day prophet. But Brigham Young is vital to this. Because either Joseph Smith was a prophet, or like Joseph Smith III, 
Brigham Young was a prophet or neither of them were. And if you believe Brigham Young was the prophet, there are... It, it, it lends credence to the mainline church today being the one that is ordained of God, or I guess Joseph Smith would want. Um, if you're willing to accept that Brigham Young was a prophet and so was everyone after him in that line of things. <clears throat> the issue is Br Brigham Young taught a lot of things that are kind of glossed over today, despite him definitely implying that their doctrine in letters he wrote and in talks he gave he was pro-slavery. He taught that Adam was God the Father. He taught blood atonement, which is there are some things that are such devious sins that the only way to atone for them is to have your blood shed, which it, it, that didn't just mean killing. It means literally spilling your blood. So that was in popular practice, either being shot or decapitation. Um, and that brings a question of what? If certain sins can only be paid for by taking your own life or having someone else take it for you, I, I don't know. That just makes me deeply uncomfortable, especially when some of those unforgivable sins are interracial marriage. Um, and that kind of leads into a pattern of racism with Brigham Young, where he was the first real proponent for a ban on black people having the priesthood and from black people entering the temple to participate fully. Um, Brigham Young was also involved heavily in the execution of the Mountain Meadows Massacre, which was a, in order where members of the church and people that Joseph, or Brigham Young was in charge of were sent to go murder men, women, and children. Um, and there's intricacies of it. And it's you, you can look at things and say, Brigham Young didn't directly say this. But if you're saying the only way to pay for these sins is the spilling of blood, and there's some people you would be doing a favor by spilling their blood, how do you say that isn't an incitation of violence, even if you don't call for that directly? And it's interesting because a lot of the people who wouldn't have a problem with this, who wouldn't say that was a call for violence, um, I've heard people accept uh, leniency for Brigham Young here, but condemn events like what happened on January 6th with Donald Trump saying, even though he wasn't directly calling for violence, that was kind of implied there. And I, I, I tend to agree with that. But I also think that you have to accept that part of Brigham Young. And if he's the president of the church in spite of all of that, 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 that's all right. But he was teaching these things as doctrine. And if you say that the, these things aren't doctrine anymore and the church can be led astray or the prophets can sometimes speak as not prophets or, or that, that this is difficult to phrase, I'm sorry or that things could be covered by prophets, like spoken about, and later prophets can say, actually, that's not right, and that the modern prophet is always the one to listen to, who's to say that the modern prophet isn't currently misled? Because there were people who used doctrine and scriptures to back up blood atonement and to back up slavery and racism and to back up um, the Adam-God theory for, for Brigham Young. 
they would all point to doctrine there. And people in the church today do the same exact thing with talking about why God would have a problem with gay marriage or transgender people. And that's hard for me because you either have to accept that. I, I don't know if, if you can accept that the prophet can say things and be wrong. Why would you choose to accept that he's teaching that God wouldn't be okay with people loving who they choose to love? And you can talk about the importance of family and having children, but by that you're also implicating single people who don't get married in that. And I find that really problematic. But if you're able to accept all of that and you believe Brigham Young was the prophet, you can also believe that that continued on and that Russell M. Nelson is the prophet today. But I would challenge that with one question. Why do you believe that? And, and what I'm asking there is, have you looked in to James Strang and the book of the law of the land? Have you looked into what Joseph III taught? And it's very possible you have. But I would bet that people just assume that the mainstream church today is true because it's the one you hear about. It's the one you interact with. And it, it's difficult for me to believe that Joseph Smith would, if he came here today, I, I, I don't know. What denomination do you think he would go with? Or at the very least, which one do you think would be more representative of his beliefs religiously? I, I think it's hard to say that. And I think that you can't say that until you've looked into each part of the church. Be, because all of these believe in Moroni's promise, which I'll get to in just a minute, where you can pray about it and use faith to affirm that it's true. But this is a super important question. Was Brigham Young a prophet or was Joseph III a prophet or was James Strang a prophet or was Sidney Rigdon a prophet? And so many people just start at Brigham Young and Brigham Young is problematic within the church. There's people who don't really like him or like the things that he said, but they assume that he was the prophet without looking into the others. And this is vital if you believe that the church is true. You can't just say that you believe Russell M. Nelson is true because this is fundamental to how the church is organized. Brigham Young would have to be the prophet. And that's something that I would need a testimony of to be able to come back to the church. Because right now, looking at all these denominations listed out, the Church of Christ absolves nearly all of the cultural issues I have with the church. It's so much more accepting of people. They use um, modern language scriptures, which is, which is another issue. Um, that I have accepting that Russell M. Nelson is a prophet today is the church teaches that the reason we use that middle English version of the scriptures, the new Kings James version and a not modern language version of the book of Mormon is because that's what Joseph Smith used. And the more you translate it, the less accurate it will be. But if, if Russell M. Nelson is a prophet with all of the same abilities and all of the same priesthood keys and authorization of Joseph Smith, if this is something that would make the language more accessible to people in the Bible, if it's something that would make it more accurate to the original Greek, rather than having these obstacles to understanding it, why wouldn't God 
help him do that. Joseph Smith was trying to translate things uh, with the Bible, so we know that's open with, with what the church teaches, but he hasn't. No prophet has tried to do that. No one's tried to modernize the language of the Book of Mormon. No one's been okay with having easier to understand language of the Bible, even though there's more accurate versions to what was being said in Greek than the King James Version. There, there's more accurate versions we have today with more precise language that's put in a way we can understand it. And to me, the claims that, well, this is what Joseph Smith used when he was making the King, uh, the uh, Joseph Smith translation of the Bible in the Book of Mormon, so that's what we need to use, isn't super compatible with the belief that the church is led by a prophet with all of the same authorities as Joseph Smith. So that gets into an issue I have with the modern day prophet. Um, and, and then there's the issue of Brigham Young that I brought up that I think is really, really important to grapple with. But the, a, a big issue I, I grapple with also with the church is how you find out it's true. It's not just something you can read and study out with the doctrine of the church. There is something in the Book of Mormon called Moroni's Promise, where, let me see if I can find the exact passage here. Oh, excuse me. Um, let's see. All right, yeah, I, I don't have it here, but it's essentially saying if you... Read the words in the Book of Mormon and pray to know that they're true. God will testify of it to you. Or the Holy Spirit will testify of it to you. And there's two issues with this. Number one, that doesn't lead you past the date that the Book of Mormon was written. That doesn't lead you to being able to read the Book of Mormon, get a testimony of that, and then choose the mainstream church because there's still a choice to be made there that requires Brigham Young versus Joseph III versus someone else versus nothing. The issue I have is faith itself. And I don't believe that faith is a reliable way to tell if something's true. Here's a question. If you believe that the Book of Mormon is true, so many people I ask will tell me, well, it's because I read and prayed about it and had a burning in the bosom. But people of the RLDS, the Church of Christ, people of fundamentalist religions that are still practicing polygamy and their leaders have been arrested for child rape. And I know that's a, a big example, but they all say the same thing. And if you ask a Muslim or if you ask um, a, a Hindu, They'll tell you how Allah or Vishnu or a plurality of gods are the real one. And when you break it down, it's because they have that burning in the bosom. They have that faith. So how can you tell which one is which? And almost everyone on each side, it, it kind of boils down to, well, because mine is right. And when you look at the numbers, when you look at studies, what people tend to find right is what they were raised with. And... A question to ask yourself is, do you believe it's possible to read something and to pray to the God it teaches and to be convinced of something that isn't true? Do you think that's ever happened with any book? For example, 
with the the Hindu religion, do you believe that someone could read the Bhagavad Gita and they could pray about it and feel like it's true? I think that there's substantial evidence that that happens. So what do you make of that? Is the Bhagavad Gita true? You could say it's something that they felt, yeah, but is it legitimate? Is that something that you consider legitimate? And if not, if you accept, well, uh, well, first, I guess, if so, what does that say about your belief? Because you could say there's truth in everything, but if these people are using the exact same mechanism of faith to get there, and you believe they're mistaken, and they say all of the same things as you, how do you know it's not you who's mistaken? And if you deny it, if you say they don't feel that, or they're being led astray, or there's parts of the truth there, the question still arises. If you're saying the same things, and you believe that people can immerse themselves in a book and still be wrong, how do you know that's not you with the Book of Mormon? How do you know that's not you with the Bible? How do you know that's not you with any belief you have? And this is only compounded when so much religion is passed down generation to generation. So the text you read is familiar. The beliefs are familiar. And by that, everything is going to feel alien outside of that. And if you're praying and reading about something, people are generally dis, uh, predisposed to beliefs that they're comfortable with. I would bet if we had a Muslim and a Mormon both read the holy books of the other, they would have a pretty similar response to it where it's all right and it's not the whole truth. And I know that because of my faith. It's just made even more complicated when as someone's trying to discover the truth of the Book of Mormon, they're heavily encouraged to start following it, like pray to that God, go to there, immerse yourself in it, which of course you'd want to do if it was true, but that's going to predispose you even more to the risk of something being affirmed to you that could still lead you wrong. I think there's a real possibility that I read the Book of Mormon and I immerse myself in it. I go to church, I follow the teachings, and I feel that feeling at the end. What I have an issue with is I believe that would happen if I went to, let's say, the Baha'i faith, and I read their holy book every single day, and I went to their services every single week, and I was friends with the people, I, and I, I prayed to God about it at the end. I think I would feel the same. And lots of members of the church have told me that they felt the spirit reading other books, watching other media. And so we know, according to that faith, that it, it's not just one source. And I ask myself, can you be happy outside of the truth, what people consider the truth? And I think you can. But if faith is your only way of really confirming what's true, 
Like you can get into apologetics, but really for most people, it boils down to faith and that other people use that exact same mechanism and come at radically different conclusions and you'll say the same exact things as them. How can you be sure that you are right with faith alone when you both have the same feeling with wildly different points? The Book of Mormon teaches that God will make it known to you, though. And so if the Book of Mormon is true, God is going to know that faith alone or the Holy Ghost alone isn't going to be convincing to me. Or it's not going to be the entire picture. And I, I, I would think that according to the doctrine here, it says he'll make it known to you. He'll, he'll find some way if it's true. And so I've been talking for two hours. I'm... I'm exhausted physically, mentally, and spiritually, not just from recording this. It's only two hours. It's not that long, but the last few weeks, the last few months, the last few years, this has been on my mind. What's right? There's a philosopher named John Stuart Mill who taught utilitarianism. That's essentially the belief that whatever causes the most good and the least bad is the right thing to do. And he had a quote um, I wrote it down because I wanted to read it. Um, let's see, where did it go? He had a quote talking about truth um, and talking about skepticism, where he said, it's better to be a human being dissatisfied than a pig satisfied. It's better to be Socrates dissatisfied than a fool satisfied. And if the fool or the pig are of different opinion, it's only because they don't know their own side of the question. And maybe I don't know my own side of the question. But I don't like living in this dissatisfaction. I want to find truth. I, I want to be a human being satisfied. But I'd rather be a pig satisfied, I think, than a human being dissatisfied. I, I, I don't know. I go back and forth on that. I just, I know I've talked a lot here. And if you're a member of the church and active I know there's going to be things that you tell yourself about what I've said, gut reactions where it's so uncomfortable, where you don't like what I said, where it affects you deeply or you, you want to dismiss it. But e even if that's the case, even if you do, I hope you can see I'm being as genuine as I know how. I don't believe that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the only way to be happy. Even if it was 100% happiness, like that's the only place I could get my purest source of happiness. I'd rather get it from other places and be 95% happy than be 100% happy and co-sign on the bad parts. That being said, I'm open to the change. And as I read the Book of Mormon, this is the first step for me. Well, it's not the first step. I've been doing this. I've been thinking about this for years. It hasn't been a rash decision but it's an important step to read this again being open to any interpretation and I can't put into words how difficult that is to put aside everything I've known to be willing to blaspheme to be willing to go against what I've been taught to try to find what's true because I've got kids I I, I can't teach them something that I, I don't believe is moral. I can't do that. And leaving the church can be 
devastating and it tears me up inside. And that doesn't mean that it's wrong to do so inherently. Anyone who leaves something that their entire identity has been built upon, anyone who leaves something that they've grown up seeing themselves as the in-group and other people as the others, people to be converted, even if that's not always explicitly taught, it very much is the culture that people hear. It's so hard to shake that and be willing to approach this with an open mind. Um, And if you're not able to join me in that, or if you are just 100% convinced and nothing can shake that and nothing else is interesting to you to explore, that's all right. But I'd really hope that you can see I'm being as authentic as I possibly can. And I can't read this book with a predetermined notion that it's true because you're going to see what you look for. I also don't want to have a predetermined notion that it's absolutely false. Like I said, I have this right now at like a two out of 10, but that two is still there. Legitimately. I just, I I can't be authentic without looking at every possibility. And I look forward to this deep dive through the book of Mormon with anyone listening and through after that the doctrine and covenants and i guess now the book of the law of the land to see what i think about prophets um in the bible i really do look forward to that and i hope that as i do so you'll either join me in really examining everything being genuinely okay with every possibility not having your information controlled where you're only willing to read one source because everything else is anti to god And trust that God will support you if you believe in God. If you look in the sources that all of his children have put together. If the church is true, I don't think it'll be able to be harmed by investigation. And if it's not true, I think it should be harmed by investigation. I think that's a a quote from someone. I don't remember. Um, And like I said, if you can't do that, if you're at a place where that's not achievable to you, not something you're interested in, I just hope you can recognize I am trying my hardest to do what's right. I'm looking forward to this. Um, we're going to be starting on the introduction next time. Um and right into it with First Nephi. I feel like I've already given a lot of thoughts on the accounts of Joseph Smith, and I'm I'm looking forward to going through First Nephi and reading it with fresh eyes. This is new for me. This is uncomfortable for me. This podcast, um, but I think this journey is important to document, so that if non-members, if disbelievers, if atheists, agnostics see this. They can see an authentic look for the truth, even with a healthy amount of skepticism, can lead to a belief in a certain book. Great. And that members of the church can see it's possible for someone to do this authentically and come away with a different answer. And I think people who don't get validation with Moroni's promise, the immediate response from people in the church is they did something wrong. 
they're not authentic. They don't have a genuine heart, a contrite spirit. They aren't really doing it. And I hope that this process can highlight what it looks like for somebody to be doing that the very best they can. And I just ask that you're okay with wherever I end up. And I ask that you look at your own beliefs. And I'm really excited for this. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next time.